The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Okay, so you caught me doing it with somebody else. What's the big deal? You're supposed to be in love with me. What? How many times did you say it? How many times did you whisper it in my ear? You're the only woman I'll ever love. I don't know. A bunch. So were you lying to me? Were you just trying to get me into bed? No, of course not. I loved you, but we broke up. Yeah, like five minutes ago. Haven't you ever heard of a mourning period? I know it seems quick, but I have feelings for her. In fact, I think I may be in love with her. Oh, my God. What's the matter? Is it the baby? No. Oh, no, no, it's me. I am beyond stupid. You're not stupid. Oh, no, I am. Yesterday, I was still fantasizing that it could work with you. That a one-bedroom apartment might be cozy. Mrs. Solis, please. Oh, my God. I almost left my husband for someone who calls me Mrs. Solis. Are you upset because you want to get back together? Because I can break up with Joan. That's okay, sweetie. I'm good. So this is it for us? Because I really feel like we should end it better than this. Actually, John, given how stupid both of us have been, this is an entirely appropriate ending. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 4th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now until noon. No, 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 not right wing. Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 if you want to call in and tell us all your lifelong problems and, and problems in your life because today is our touchy-feely show or maybe we're going to call it Philosophy 501. Can you trust your senses? Can you trust your feelings? Are they the key to happiness or to misery? These two questions kind of divide our show into its two planned halves. Um, you know, I, I've, I've always wondered, do we just feel happy? Is it completely subjective, or is happiness a real state of being based on something more consistently real and reliable? I'm just asking, and that's something I'm going to try and deal with in the second half of the show. And Robert, you're going to be dealing more with the issue of perception itself, whereas I'll be talking more about feelings and emotion. And um, you've got some interesting things to enlighten us with this morning, I understand. Nothing, um, I'm sure, that you're not familiar with, Bob. Um, it's going to get a little oh, heavy, I think. you never know. Okay, yeah, we're, we're getting into philosophy, philosophy 501 today. 501. This is not current <laughs> events or anything like that, but I think it may relate to a lot of people's daily lives by the time they hear the end of this show, yeah. a lot more than they think. I think it's more of philosophy 101 in a sense, yeah? because I'm going to be talking about fundamentals. Fundamentals in philosophy, especially. I, I always think that's the 501. Because <laughs> when you get to the fundamentals, then it's then it's higher up a learning, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, yeah. just looking at it the other way around. Well, all knowledge is hierarchical, of course, of course. and especially philosophy is hierarchical. And you have to have a starting point. And you and I would call ourselves objectivists, or at the very least students of objectivism, because I would not profess to know everything about the philosophy of Ayn Rand, but I certainly do know a lot about her. 
and about her philosophy. And uh, But I'm always learning and always trying to put it into practice. But at the foundation of objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, is the metaphysical tenet that existence exists, i.e. reality is. You sure about that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am, actually. Okay. Uh, to borrow a phrase from Exodus, God said to Moses, I am that I am. In objectivism, reality is that it is. And from this axiom, objectivism holds that our senses are valid. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today, is the senses. In fact, to say that the senses are valid is axiomatic. Because in order to prove the statement, one must refer, ultimately, to his senses. So it's self-referential. As Ayn Rand observed, quote, Man's senses are his only direct cognitive contact with reality, and therefore his only source of information. Without sensory evidence, there can be no concepts. Without concepts, there can be no language. And without language, there can be no knowledge and no science, unquote. Imagine for a moment being a person born without any senses to connect oneself to reality. No sight, hearing, touch, taste, sense of smell, no sense of the body, which is called the kinesthetic sense, no sense of time. Being born in such a condition, how would such a person grow to develop the most simplest of concepts? They could not. For all intents and purposes, such a person, person would be alive in a physiological sense only. There'd be no consciousness, for there would be nothing to which to be conscious of. One wouldn't even know what it was that they were missing in their state of unconsciousness. It would be akin to being dead. It would you, be then, oblivion. Then when you, call, when you say that somebody's idea is senseless, you're kind of really insulting them, aren't you? Senseless? Yeah, that's a senseless idea, or something. You know, you heard, uh, you hear that's that interesting. Phrase. I, yeah. I never, just as you were saying it, the word "senseless" came to my mind, and I'm thinking, you know, that's. I wonder if that derivative came from there. I, I wonder. Yeah, no, Some, someone who has no way of perceiving what's going on around them, and so comes up with their own wild, unrelated to reality ideas. You know what I mean? Hmm. That's a senseless person. Interesting. You got yeah. me thinking no, about just, that word. No, it just hit yeah. me just now. Yeah. Hmm. Um, most of us have heard of Helen Keller who at mm -hmm. the age of 19 months lost her sight and hearing. I didn't realize until investigating this a little further that she was born normal. I didn't as know far that as the either. senses go, yes. Mm -hmm. Though she did have a distended eye. But though she was, you know, she could see and hear. But at 19 months, just a toddler, she lost her sight and hearing because of um, some disease she contracted very, and, and it passed very quickly. But when it was over, she was uh, deaf I mean, and, and blind and dumb. Uh, her story has been immortalized, of course, in plays and movies, the most memorable for me personally being The Miracle Worker of 1962, which starred Anne Bancroft and Anne, as Anne Sullivan and Patty Duke as Helen. Oh, Fantastic yeah. performances, great movie. We'll be hearing a bit from it shortly. Have you we? seen it? Long time ago. Yeah. Probably in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the age of seven... Helen's teacher, Anne Sullivan, opened her mind to the world by painstakingly teaching her that objects in reality have names, something we take it for, for granted because it's taught to us very early on. It's not even taught to us. It, it becomes part of our... It, it's part we of learn our it process. ourselves. Yes, it's a process that our bodies are, 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 are evolved to, to do and to understand automatically. But if you take away your senses, that process has become interrupted. Anne Sullivan would place objects in um, Helen's hand, such as her favorite doll, and in the other hand she would spell D-O-L-L -L in sign language. 
Helen didn't understand it at first, of course. She's only seven years old. She didn't know what this was, was, was going on. And it took several repetitions over many situations for Helen to get the concept. The most touching scene of the movie was when Helen grasped her first name, that of Water, and would sign W-A-T-E-R when she washed her hair. With water, of course, and, and when they waded in a stream, they, she would sign W-A-T-E-R, and when she pumped water from a well. Removing all the extraneous entities, Helen finally understood the commonality. You had to get to the essential. The essential, yeah. and it dawned on her. And that dawning was such a sight to see near the end of the movie. It was actually tear-jerking. It was emotional to watch that process take place in the young Helen Keller. Once she grasped this amazing fact, Helen was insatiable in her desire to learn as much about the world around her as she could. From the simple naming of objects, she quickly formed higher-order concepts such as love, compassion, joy, and sorrow. Helen eventually learned how to speak, although not without some difficulty in being understood. I think we all have an idea of how deaf people uh, speak. It's a, sometimes it's difficult to understand what they say. She graduated from college, believe it or not, with a Bachelor of Arts, published several books, and became a political advocate, being one of the founders of the ACLU. I don't think anyone could have told Helen Keller that her few remaining senses were not valid in being her only source of knowledge. Prior to her grasping the idea of concepts, she was an unruly child who reacted to stimuli in much the same way as an animal would. But with the advantage of being able to conceptualize, she quickly moved from acting animalistically to acting as a human being, being able to reason, communicate, and choose courses of action outside the world of mere sensations. There are philosophies which hold that knowledge is achieved not from the senses, but from either the intellect, or some call it the soul, or some other mystical way. These are derivative philosophies of Plato, who mused that what we sense are as mere shadows on a cave wall with the perceiver sitting in the cave with his back to the adit. True reality laid beyond the senses of these shadows, out of reach of the perceiver, and could only be experienced by some supernatural, sensual material to the soul. Of course, the very explanation of Plato's shadows on a cave wall could not even be conceived of, communicated, or explained without referring to the senses. Ayn Rand commented on this in her book for the New Intellectual. Quote, let the witch doctor who does not choose to accept the validity of sensual uh, sensory perception try to prove it without using the data he obtained by sensory perception. Unquote. Plato's world beyond the shadows, the heaven and hell of spiritualists today, for example, is, of course, a pure fiction. To create such a reality actually requires the senses and knowledge gained from the senses that such a reality would suggest doesn't exist. For Plato and his descendant philosophers to explain such a reality would require them to confirm its non-existence since any explanation requires everything we have learned from our senses, which are the only things we have, which are in contact with reality and our only source of knowledge. I hope I'm not getting a little well, you confusing here. You literally have to reject everything you knew and experienced to deny reality. Yes, you understand. Good. Yeah. Okay. It's impossible to prove 
such a supernatural reality and its existence without first confirming that reality exists. The very anti-concept of supernatural is self-denying. On the one half, one hand, for anything to be above reality, it would have to either exist and therefore be part of reality, or by defini- definition, not exist. Correct. You understand? Yep. I think you do. Good. Any objectivist would understand. It's what outside I'm the bubble. About. Yes. It's outside the universe. Outside whatever the universe. If, bubble if reality is, is <laughs> yeah. described by a circle, anything outside of that is non-reality, right. i.e., non-existence. It doesn't exist. It's not there. It's nothing. Right. So if it's super to reality, it is by definition not there. It doesn't exist. Right. Right. So reality is self-referential. Any attempt to prove otherwise actually confirms the statement that existence exists. To deny existence is like trying to pull oneself up by one's bootstraps. A person who exists tries in vain to prove that existence does not exist. And if that person so, then um, if that were so, then the person trying to prove that existence doesn't exist wouldn't exist to prove his non-existence. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he says glazed eyes. That makes sense. <laughs> if I'm going to deny my own existence, I'm existing to, to make that denial. Yes. So you're always running into contradictions, which is why contradictions are not permitted in nature. They don't really exist. Exactly. Whenever, whenever you run into a contradiction, you know you're running into an error in knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. You got it, Bob. Yeah. yeah. As funny as, as what I just said might sound, there are philosophers who believe that existence does not exist. Immanuel Kant, for example, believed that existence was not a real predicate for individuals, said the man who self-evidently existed. Never never heard of him. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a little break now and actually hear from that movie, uh, The Miracle Worker, starring Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke and fantastic performances. And this is the moment when... Uh, well, there's actually two moments oh, okay. here where she's trying to teach her that objects have names. And then after the bumper, we're going to hear uh, when she actually actually grasped that concept, that entities exist and that they have names. And when we come back, of course, we're going to continue on about not the validity of the senses, but the reliability of the senses. Excellent. We'll return right after this. <laughs> Reach! I wanted to teach you. Oh. Everything the earth is full of, Helen. Everything on it, it's always for a wink and it's gone. And what we are on it. The light we bring to it and leave behind in words. Well, you can see 5,000 years back in a light of words. Everything we feel. Think. Know and share in words. So not a soul is in darkness, or done with even in the grave. But I know. I know one word, and I can put the world in your hand. And whatever it is to me, I won't take less. How do I tell you that this means a word? And the word means this thing, woe, for this. This T-O-O-L means this thing. Oh, dress. 
F-A-C-E, face! That was quite an emotional scene to watch in the movie The Miracle Worker. And if you'll go onto YouTube and, and search for Helen Keller, you'll actually see videos of her speaking. And it's quite a remarkable thing to see how far she went from learning that certain shapes in the hand in sign language meant water. And from that, her world was opened, and her mind was opened. Just shows how, how symbolically the mind works, because it has to be able to turn symbols into representations of reality, and then relate that to the reality, and then back to the symbol again. That's an amazing process. It's at the fundamental root of, of the philosophy of objectivism, and I think objectivism is, is Aristotelian in, a, in, a, in its sense, that it identified that senses are in contact with reality, and everything that we reason has to come back to sensual data at some point. If it doesn't, you cannot say that it is part of reality. And everything in objectivism flows from that uh, tenet mm -hmm. that senses are valid. But validity of something doesn't necessarily mean reliability. Two different concepts, and I learned this when I was studying psychology at university, it's very fundamental to understand that validity and reliability are two different things. One of the ready-made arguments against the validity of the senses is that our senses can either be fooled or be unreliable. Of course, when we posit the axiom that senses are valid, we imply the condition of normality. Our senses can deceive us, but of course, in order to be deceived, we must first conceive we must have conceptions already formed in order for any deception of the senses to be realized. That's how sleight-of-hand magic tricks work. 
We expect a result based on our preconceived notions, but are tricked into accepting a different result. Sawing a lady in half would normally result in a lot of blood and screaming and <laughs> death, followed by police questioning, coroner's inquiries, and lengthy jail time. But when the illusionist puts the lady back together, it's usually followed by applause at having been successfully deceiving his audience. Our eyes saw, but our brains did not understand. Bravo! How did he do it? Then, of course, there are the senses which deceive us by being diseased or deformed or not existing at all. A person like me, who is myopic, for example, sees the world without my glasses rather fuzzy. I'll need my corrective lenses to see it properly. A baseball at arm's length seems to have an undefined surface, it, going just by its, it, the visual sense, and yet in my hand, I feel its smoothness. I know that one of my senses is defective. Is it my eyes or is it my hand? The, is the baseball fuzzy or is it smooth? I know because of experience and knowledge from the information given to me by other senses and by the testimony of trusted optometrists that it's my eyes that are deceiving me. When, after too many martinis, one finds it hard to walk a straight line because one's vestibular sense is impaired, one doesn't conclude that reality consists of tilting floors and moving walls, one realizes that one has had too much to drink and it's time to lay off the sauce. Seasickness, an affliction I know all too well, can be combated by coordinating the vestibular sense with the visual. And for that reason, I usually spend a sea voyage looking at the horizon to avoid the ugly alternative. <laughs> Alternatively, I have a few martinis and blame the result on them. <laughs> the unreliability of the senses is not the norm and should not be considered an argument for the validity. The two terms, although related, mean different things. To be valid means to correctly correspond with the real world. To be reliable is to be correct most of the time. As an example, consider your bathroom scales. The device is a valid way to determine your weight, but it can give you an unreliable result if, for example, the battery in the scales is weak and it needs to be changed. In this example, your weight is your weight. Reality is what it is. Or, existence exists. The scale is your senses. It is a valid method of gaining knowledge about your weight. Even if it is off now and then, that's not the norm. And so it is with reality in our senses. They may be defective now and then. They may be fooled at times. But they are only our only contact with reality. And as such, our only source of knowledge. There is no mystical realm to be sought after by means of mystical means. There is only reality. Only our senses to detect it and only our volitional mind to understand it. And that is a fundamental tenet of the philosophy of Ayn Rand, objectivism. The reality exists whether we see it or not, whether we see it incorrectly or not, whether we do anything about it or not. It is what it is. It's there. It's objective. It has nothing to do with how we see it, how we perceive it, because it exists. Interesting. You know... I knew you were doing this subject yesterday, and while I was researching my own, as you know, another philosopher I like is a fellow named John McMurray, who yes. I'll talk about a little more after the break. And he had a very fascinating observation to make about perception, which is sort of dealing with your theme. And he said, um, 
He said, theories of self-perception have always tended to be primarily theories of vision. Now, this concentration of attention on vision has had a very important effect upon philosophy. I don't see that. In general. Well, listen to this. From the time of the Greeks... You didn't get that, did you? I don't see that. I don't see that. Well, you said a few things earlier, too. You even said something like, um, you said, um, when when Helen Keller had her dawning, you said it was such a sight to see. Yes. Right? And I'm thinking, isn't that interesting? You're saying exactly what, what McMurray is pointing out here. He says, from the time of the Greeks... And especially through the influence of Plato, vision has tended to be the model upon which all knowledge is constructed. Thought is taken to be an inner vision. Contemplation is seen as reflection. The basis of science is observation. The scientist himself is the observer, right? It's all eyes, all based on the eyes. Mm -hmm. He says, when we talk of the world which we discover in sense perception as the world which we come to understand by reflective thought, we usually mean the world that we see when we use our eyes. This tendency, of course, is not merely a philosophical convention. It has powerful roots in the de facto importance of vision in the practical life. But if we are seeking an adequate theory of sense perception, it is dangerous to give way to such psychological tendencies, however natural. The most serious effect of doing so is that in visual perception, we do stand over the object we see. It is set before us, and our seeing it has no causal effect upon it. Seeing uh, seeing is prima facie a pure receptivity. To exercise it attentively, we withdraw from action altogether. As a consequence, the visual model tends to instigate a strong contrast between knowing and acting, which in abstract theory passes easily into conceptual dualism. Isn't that an amazing observation? Tactual perception, on the other hand, involves physical contact between the organ of sense and the object being perceived, while vision is incompatible with this. Tactual perception is necessarily perception in action. To touch anything is to exert pressure upon it, however slight and therefore however slightly, to modify it. So when you're touching something, you're modifying it, you're changing it. Visual perception, on the contrary, excludes any operation upon the object and is a perception in passivity. Well, quantum theorists might yeah. object to that. But. Uh, well, you know what he's, what he's saying in terms of action, human action he's talking about yes. here. Okay, This is philosophy, not, not quantum physics. Okay, The core of tactual perception is the experience of resistance. And resistance is not a sense datum, even if it may be abstracted as such. It is essentially a practical experience. Resistance, he says, is a frustration of the will. And that's... And futile. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he has some great theories on resistance. Without resistance, you wouldn't have freedom either. Yeah, you need resistance was, to move, right? McMurray is worth reading. Uh, very much so, and I'll be getting into uh, quite a bit more of what he has to say on the other side of this coming break. Now, if we can't even trust our own eyes, is it reasonable to think that we can trust our feelings? And I think that's a question to consider when we return on the other side of the half hour. Back right after this. Hello? Back here. Uh, I was wondering if there was someone I could speak to about a magic trick. You can speak to me. My name is Madeline Hayes. I'm a detective. Abby. Abby Cadabra. What trick did you want to talk about? Well, Mr. Cadabra. Abby. Abby. It's a trick, 
where the magician threatens that after he dies, he will come back to life long enough to kill someone who has betrayed him. After he dies? After he dies. Sounds like a one-time-only trick. I saw it happen, Abby. He was in the coffin. Hours later, the coffin was empty. Hours after that, the person he threatened was dead. That's some trick. It is a trick, isn't it? Certainly has all the makings. Nothing new in escaping from a box. They've done that before. And if the man wasn't really dead in the first place... But he was. I mean, that's the tricky part. I saw the coroner's report, and the man I work with saw the body with his own eyes. What? Wish I had a penny for every time I've heard that. But I did. He did. If people didn't have eyes to be sure with, it wouldn't be so easy to fool them. Mama, you were always good with your hands. So, mijo, I assume you didn't insist that I travel 2,000 miles for small talk. So why am I here? She... isn't happy. Oh. I've given her everything she ever wanted, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. I feel her drifting further and further away. And lately, I've started thinking that maybe... So you think she's cheating on you? I think so. We can talk about your problems, but I'm not going to have any of that. Oyeste! Do you have any proof? No, it's, it's just a feeling. I had that feeling with your father and that whore waitress. And I was right. Always trust your feelings. So what do I do? You don't do anything. I'll take care of it. Thank you, Mama. I'm sorry I had to hit you. But we're strong people. And we don't cry about our problems. Wow, what a clip. Always trust your feelings, but keep them well hidden. Mm. <laughs> Understand we have a caller on the line, Robert. Scott, are you there? Hey, how's it going? Um, interesting topic today. I, I had a question, and I, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, but about perception, um, our eyes, do they not see um, everything um, but it's mirrored? So every everything that we're seeing through our eyes is actually a mirror image of what it really is? Actually, Scott, um, you're right and, and, and wrong at the same time. The eye... Part of the eye is the retina. I, I, I stu actually studied this in university. The, uh, you're right. The lens in the uh, front of the eye turns things upside down on our retina, but the retina feeds back to the brain, and the visual cortex in the back of the brain actually puts things right side up. There's an interesting experiment where a researcher put prisms in front of the subject's eyes, and after several days of walking around with things turned upside down, for the observer, he learned to turn things right side up again back in his brain. So while the eye is a static object and, and actually does impose a, an upside down image on the retina, our brain flips that around. Does that answer your question? 
Yeah, I guess I, I sort of remember hearing something about that, and based on your topic, uh, I thought it, it goes into sometimes our senses could sort of trick us, and we might not be perceiving what, what it really is. But thanks for taking my call. Okay. Thanks, Scott. I, I wouldn't worry about it, Scott. I don't think the world is really upside down. <laughs> and then we're just looking at it right But it's an up. interesting, yeah. um, it's instructive because sure. it tells us that the brain is actually part of the sense organ. Absolutely. Yeah. And, of course, beyond our senses, then we get into our feelings and our emotions, um, which we treat as another sense. And it's, you know, it's frightening to think that in the country of Canada today, that people's feelings are so much the subject of legislation. So much so that we've, you and I have run into uncountable human rights commissions cases we've seen brought before us, where it's been made clear that the respondent or the defendant has been held personally responsible for the feeling of somebody else. Right, even if they had no knowledge of or intention of that person's feelings of all yes. at all, you know, trying to affect them. The crime of offense. Yeah, and now this is an entirely irrational thing. Feelings and emotions are not primaries, particularly for issues of justice and civil actions. I last explicitly focused on the issues of feelings and emotions on two back-to-back -back broadcasts of Just Right uh, back in 2008, and that shows 66 and 67, if you're interested, which is now like, oh, five years ago. But you know what, Robert? To me, it doesn't feel like five years ago. In some ways, it feels like yesterday. In other ways, it feels like a lifetime ago. And in some ways, I almost don't really remember those specific shows at all, and I don't really have any feelings about it at all. I had to do a search on our, old, our, on our own site to see if we even had covered the subject area and how we did it. So you see, even in so basic and simple a task as learning when I discussed an issue on the air, I for sure cannot rely on my own feelings about when I did it in any, any reliable way without some objective source or evidence that I can trust, that my, feel, that my senses have to interpret. I can't feel my way to a date five years ago. Well, are you confusing feelings with just simple memory? Um, well, no, you, you have a sense. When, we, when you remember something, a lot of that is feeling, especially time. Time is a sense of feeling, in a sense. An impression, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, okay. And even though I felt, I, we, we use that term, and that's part of the problem, too, perhaps. And, uh, but, but in any case, we talked about these issues, and at that time we were talking about John McMurray, who I introduced as uh, a Scottish philosopher who lectured in both Britain and in Canada during the 1930s and 40s, including at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, way back before my time. This is in the 1940s. In his book, um, and that is John McMurray's book, The Self is Agent, there's an introduction written by Stanley Harrison who, who, who says... In summarizing what McMurray has to say, he says it's a serious mistake to think that rationality has only to do with our intellectual capacities. On the contrary, our feelings and emotions have, have a reference to the real world just as our thoughts do. What McMurray shows with stunning insight is that the maxim that says it's logical th that logical thought is objective while feeling is purely subjective is simply a dogma generated by the error of dualism. And the failure to recognize that scientific knowing, potent as it is, abstracts entirely from the worth of things. Which is a really interesting statement. It comes from values. And, of course, for McMurray, the task of philosophy is a search for reality. And one of his, his axioms is that the quest for certainty is always an illusion rooted in fear, while the quest for objectivity is 
is rooted in reality and is capable of being cultivated by disciplined experience. Now, turning to McMurray himself, a couple of his points is, he says, objective emotion is not a mere reaction to stimulus. It's an immediate appreciation of the value and the significance of real things. Emotional reason, which is what we discussed on the show last time, in those first two shows, is our capacity to apprehend objective values. And he talks about what is the task of developing emotional reason in man. He says the real problem of the development of emotional reason is to shift the center of feeling from the self to the world outside. We can only begin to grow up into rationality when we begin to see our emotional life not as the center of, of things. So I wanted to review a little of what I had said earlier on that show because this is just invaluable information. And he says, and this is McMurray from, uh, I think this is from his book, um, Reason and Emotion. Quote, if we are to be scientific in our thoughts, we must be ready to subordinate our wishes and desires to the nature of the world. Reason demands that our beliefs should conform to the nature of the world, not to the nature of our hopes and our ideals. In this field, therefore, the discovery of truth must be, from the subjective side, a process of disillusionment. Our natural tendency is to feel and believe in a way that satisfies our impulses. This is how a lot of people feel, right? Yes, indeed. And reality is always a bummer when it conflicts with your beliefs, right? (laughs) It is precisely the same problem that faces us in the field of morality. Morality, after all, is merely a demand for rational behavior. Morality demands that we should act in the light of eternity, end quote, end quote. That is, in terms of things as they really are, and of people as they really are, and not in terms of our subjective inclinations and private sympathies. What can it mean, then, to distinguish between rational and irrational feelings? We are in a habit of saying that our feelings are just felt, like I did when I opened this, opened this segment. They can't be either true or false, they just are what they are. Our thoughts, on the other hand, we think, yeah, they they can be true or false. About that, we have no difficulty. Yet, if we think carefully, we shall realize that there is no special difference between feelings and thoughts in this respect. We could easily say that our thoughts are just what we think. We just think them, and they are what they are. How then can they either be true or false? The answer is that their truth or falsity does not lie in them, but in the relation between them and the things to which they refer. True thoughts are the thoughts which refer properly to reality and which are thought in terms of the nature of the object to which they refer, not to the nature of the being that's referring to them, right? Why should our feelings be in in any different case? Since our feelings then refer to what is outside them, to some object about which they are felt, why should they not refer rightly or wrongly to the object just like our thoughts? Why should they not be proper feelings when they are in terms of the nature of the object and we call them improper feelings when they are not in in terms of the nature of the object? Because that's the distinction we are always making. In thinking thoughts, we think the things to which the thoughts refer. In feeling emotions, we feel the things to which the emotions refer. And therefore, it is possible to think rightly or wrongly which is part of what we're hearing in those um, excerpts from, from Desperate Housewives that we just heard both at the opening of the, of the show and uh, coming into this segment. Um, 
you know, you have the mother there saying that she trusts her feelings. And, and, and you know, you can actually reliably trust your feelings if you're, and if you can, I mean, if you can trust your feelings, that means your feelings are pretty rooted in reality. That means you've had a track record. That means you can spot something, you know, almost tell, you know, that's that kind of person and be right most of the time. You can never draw a firm conclusion on a feeling. But it will lead you in a direction in which to employ the, your other senses and your rationality and perhaps protect you from areas that you can't immediately, um, you know, perceive or conceive. In a sense, they are like the senses in that they could be valid and yet unreliable at times. Right. It's, it's like, you know, uh, in our opening uh, segment for when we started the show today, where you have Solis saying that she's beyond stupid. How the day before she was fantasizing that she could be cozy living with this guy, right? The next day, all the reality has crashed. All of a sudden, she sees things for how they are. Because, quote, reality has stepped at her doorstep. She's out of money. Now she has to deal with survival. Right? And it'd be incorrect, though, to think that emotions are primaries. No, they're not. But that's not what he's saying. No, no, he's not saying they're primaries. Okay. Um, but they are valid, just as our thoughts are. They're valid as long as your um, what preceded them is is or they uh, can be true. Valid. Yeah, or just as your thoughts and emotions both can be valid or invalid depending on whether they relate properly yes. to the object that they're talking about. So you know, never mind the fundamental injustice of of holding some people legally or civilly responsible in human rights complaints for the feelings of others, even if those feelings were justified. Consider, Robert, the implications of this in those many cases where the so-called victims of emotional distress in a human rights commission were feeling wrongly about something, totally feeling wrongly, which is usually the case. We always find that when we go in there, and yet they're rewarded for do, for feeling that way by the state. Here's what we're getting into here. Feelings and emotions have become so much of an obsession by some governments that a movement has been undertaken to measure not just the measurable, as in an economic status of a nation, but to measure the unmeasurable, which is the happiness of a nation's citizens. And that's what I want to talk about when we return from this next break. I feel trapped. You want me to open a window? No, I'm talking about my life. Oh. Are we done making out? No, no. Keep going. So what's up? I'm unhappy. With Carlos and my marriage. I feel like I don't have options and it's driving me crazy. Every time something went south in my life, I always had a plan B. Now I feel like I have nothing. Well, what about me? And can I be your plan B? Damn it, John. What is our new rule? Stop pretending we have a future. Thank you. You know what I don't get? What? Why you married Mrs. Solis? Well, he promised to give me everything I've ever wanted. Did he? Yes. And why aren't you happy? Turns out I wanted all the wrong things. I do. Well, then why are we here? Why are we doing this? 
Because I don't want to wake up one morning with a sudden urge to blow my brains out. Hey, can I have a drag? Absolutely not. You are much too young to smoke. <laughs> I tell you, that's sort of like, uh, you know, the state of a nation can often be seen in a state of just a couple of individuals sometime. Gross national unhappiness. You know, in a pair of National Post newspaper features on March 26 and 27, we discover that the French, that is, those living in the country of France, get this, Robert, are amongst the most unhappy people on the face of the planet, ranking even after Afghanistan and Iraq. But don't they live in a socialist utopia? Well, <laughs> that's, that's the whole point. And don't a lot of countries live in a socialist utopia. What makes France so different? or so low on the scale. This conclusion was arrived at by uh, polling people on their self-described happiness levels, and there you're already into the whole world of subjectivity if you get to describe it on your, your own self. The you measurement know. sounds very gross. Yes, <laughs> happiness is a gross measurement, you're right. And on future expectations, two factors which, in my own humble estimation, both invalidate any such study and explains the great mystery that remains an unexplained mystery for speculation in both of the National Post features. The first headlined why the French really are les miserables. <laughs> uh, unhappiness reigns despite wine in the welfare state by Scott Barber cites researcher Claudia Senex quote the French unhappiness puzzle the cultural dimension of happiness and I guess uh, they write, despite free access to health care, hospitals, public schools, and universities, dissatisfaction is so prevalent in France, it ranked worse in Iraq and Af in Afghanistan in a survey of expectations for 2012, according to a Wynn-Gallup poll. Interestingly, the study suggests that the French take their unhappiness with them when they move to other countries. While non-native French who move to France do not exhibit the same levels of unhappiness as the natives. That's interesting. And she writes, this suggests there's something in the culture that makes the French people more miserable, Miss Senek wrote. The socialization of children, especially in the public school system, is the most likely culprit, she claims. Well, I'd agree with that. School, yeah. Public schools are perhaps the biggest culprit when it comes to sapping the life out of oh. people's expectations she says, about I think, reality. I think the role of the primary school system in France is partly to blame, she told the local online news site. If unhappiness is partly due to someone's mentality, then people are forming that negative mentality at an early stage in primary schools. End quote. Ms. Senek thinks many in France feel skeptical and uneasy about the new world order. There is something deep in the French ideology that makes them dislike market-based globalization, end quote. Now, the second National Post feature headlined Gross National Unhappiness by Peter Foster asks, what could the French possibly have to be unhappy about? And sarcastically describes how the French, quote, live in a comprehensive welfare state with free education, free health care, even if it is patently unsustainable. They bask in rigid restrictions on effort including a 35-hour work week, overseen by powerful labor unions. They have sluggish growth, high unemployment, hefty national debt, and a deficit well above that stipulated by the EU, which they must address by cutting spending or raising taxes. Ms. Senek, however, is puzzled about how forced equality might, in destroying liberty, have crippled fraternity, and thus happiness, end quote. 
Unfortunately, Foster himself doesn't particularly enlighten us on how and why this is so, only that it is so. Making the usual very accurate, economic, but irrelevant case. Foster pl- blames France for getting rid of Sarkozy and electing Hollande, effectively moving from socialism to more socialism. And writes, but the market doesn't provide solutions. It just tells you whether the solutions you're employing to address a particular problem are appropriate. In his conclusion, the French are facing, quote, economic reality. And I guess I, as a reader, am supposed to conclude that this economic reality is the cause of the French unhappiness. In reality, I think it's the unreality of the French economy that's the cause of that country's economic crisis. Similarly, it's not reality, but unreality is the cause of unhappiness in the personal lives of people. True happiness comes from the achievement of one's personal values. As human beings, we are hardwired to respond this way, or as some prefer, it's our nature to respond to the stimulus, to that kind of stimulus, with a happiness response. Now, consider... This startling observation by Leonard Peikoff. He says, The ability to achieve values is useless if one has stopped from exercising that ability. For example, if an individual is caught in a dictatorship, like France, (laughs) or suffering from a terminal illness, or loses an irreplaceable person essential to his existence as a valuer as may occur in the death of a beloved wife or husband. In such situations, suffering or stoicism is all that is possible, he writes. Now, of course, completely unlike university studies and newspaper articles on the subject of happiness, who never define the word in any meaningful way, objectivism does operate on a complete hierarchy of values and of fixed definitions. Ayn Rand clearly defines happiness as, quote, a state of non-contradictory joy, a joy without penalty or guilt, a joy that does not clash with any of your values and does not work for your own destruction, not the joy of escaping from your mind but of using your mind's fullest power, not the joy of faking faking reality but of achieving values that are real, not the joy of a drunkard but of a producer. You know, and then she adds, love in this context means a desire to gain and enjoy a value. Fear means the the desire to escape a disvalue. This very much explains the character of Solis we just heard in the clip. There she is, she says she loves her husband, but she's miserable. She's with this guy. She's in total conflict with her own values. She's stating them to to the person. And yet people will go on and continually act in not in accordance with what they know. That is the mystery of the human being. And, of course, Peikoff explains um, happiness is not an absence either, which we talk about a lot, you know. He says, says, it's not what you feel when you stop beating your head against the wall. It's what you feel when you refuse ever to engage in such a beating. When you esteem and protect your head as a matter of principle, (laughs) you don't even think about beating your head. And, of course, you know, McMurray, again, uh, also fights the zero worship thing. He says emotions can be real or unreal. And he says, just as we talked about earlier, you know, you can, whether it relates to the object or not, that is what we're dealing with. And um, he says the intellect itself cannot be a source of action, which is true. People are emotionally motivated. That's the motivator. Anyone in politics can attest to that. A A lot of intellects out there that don't do much. They just talk about politics and not do much. And he says, the education of the emotions consists in the cultivation of a direct sensitiveness to the reality of the world around us. The reason why our emotional life is so undeveloped is that we habitually suppress a great deal of our sensitivity and train our children from their earliest years to suppress much of their own. 
It might be strange that we should cripple ourselves so heavily in this way, but there is a simple reason for it. We are afraid of what would be revealed to us if we did not cripple our emotional sensitivity. In practice, sensitivity hurts. It is not possible to develop the capacity to see beauty without developing also the capacity to see ugliness, for they are of the same capacity. The capacity for joy is also the capacity for pain. We soon find that any increase in our sensitiveness to what is lovely in the world increases also our capacity for being hurt. That is the dilemma in which life has placed us. We must choose between a life that is thin and narrow, uncreative and mechanical, sounds like France now, doesn't it? With the assurance that even if it's not very exciting, it will not be intolerably painful. In a life in which the increase in its full fullness and creativeness brings a vast increase in delight, but also in pain and hurt. On the whole, we have seemed to have chosen to seek the absence of pain, and as a result we have produced stagnation and crudity. McMurray's description is particularly apt for the description of the state of happiness of the French people and of any welfare state in general. I feel you're right, Bob. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you feel better? I see the truth <laughs> in it. That's it for this week. Hope you're feeling better. If not, maybe we've opened a few doors for you where you could look to feel better. Or open That's your eyes. Or, <laughs> opening doors for now. Till next week, continue on the right direction. We'll see you a week from now. Fade into color, Everything will be all right. How do I know you'll still love me if we get married? Baby, you know how I love married ladies. The aesthetic enjoyment of transcendental meditation brings a wonderfulness of love and peace. And I can get it for you for a dollar fifty. I get this terrible fear. I imagine this huge, hairy brute is going to overpower me. My psychiatrist says this won't happen. That's when I get this terrible fear. (laughs) 